Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Matters of the Heart and Soul podcast. This is Janie. And what we have coming up is called The Importance of Genealogy. And Russell is actually tackling that big old podcast. Genealogy is the study of family history and lineage. It is an important tool for understanding our past, present, and for preserving our legacy for future generations. Genealogy can help us develop a strong sense of our cultural background, where we come from, and in turn, it can help us develop a strong sense of who we really are. It's so important to to understand genealogy because in a time where truth is being revealed and the lies are being torn down, it's so important to talk to your own family. So if you can talk to your parents, your grandparents, your great grandparents, how many generations can you actually go back? Who holds the key to your family history? And the truth is we do. We have to teach our own families our own history. If we you know, just sit back and wait for somebody else to tell it, well, then we could expect lies. We can expect, you know, history to be told in the way that somebody else wants it to be told. So we hold the key to our own family history. And it's so important to start with genealogy. Who do you share genes with? Who actually raised you? What are their names and who are their parents and who are their parents and so on. So sit back, relax. Russell's going to break it all down. And um, you can also watch this episode on YouTube. I think it's a good idea to actually watch it on YouTube because he does a lot of screen sharing and he shares his own genealogy and how that was all broken down. So it's a beautiful podcast, guys. And as always, I'll catch you on the other side. Welcome back to another episode of Matters of the Heart and Soul Podcast. This is your host, Russell Bruce, and the beautiful Jamie Sharlow, as we continue to bring you more amazing content to all matters of the heart and soul as we awaken humanity to all things within. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Enjoy. That they don't know how to do it to win this war is to know that you don't have to, you know, go by the creator when you tap into your consciousness, exactly. I you distracted so you might go with it. Be in the most positive posture day You're excited about your day, like charged up, because what exists in it starts in the mind. You can't see the mental, spiritual realm, and they're going to manifest in the physical. If they're using anything, we have to be unified. And just because somebody has, person is, is, is bringing love and compassion and light, you powerful. Welcome back to another episode of Matters of the Heart and Soul podcast. I'm your host, Russell Bruce. And tonight we're coming at you with another episode of importance here. And tonight is going to be the importance of genealogy. Genealogy is a study of family history and lineage. It is an important tool for understanding our past and present and for preserving our legacy, our future for future generations. Genealogy can help us develop a strong sense of our cultural background and where we came from, which in turn can help us develop a strong sense of who we really are. Family history research can help us connect with our ancestors and gain a greater understanding of the challenges they face. This can inspire greater love and compassion for their flaws and mistakes, which can translate to our relationships with the living within our families and outside of them. 
In addition, genealogy can help us build resilience by learning about our ancestors' lives and seeing patterns of overcoming failures and surviving hard times. Their stories remind us that surely not everything in life will work easily, that disappoints occur, that disappoints occur and inequalities exist, but that we can recover and triumph and find happiness despite our hardships. Finally, genealogy can help us find belonging by learning about our roots, our culture connections, our ethnicity. It can play an important role in helping us find this sense of community and connection with others. So tonight, I want to share a little bit about my ancestry and trying to uh, you know, that really show the importance of all this, right? Because we, we hear a lot of stories about history and not too many times do people try to find themselves and their families in this historical context. We kind of just take things at value. Uh, one of the things, for example, uh, most African-Americans can probably relate to, you know, especially if you say we're born prior to the 1970s or even in the 70s, watching the movie Roots. Roots was uh, a movie that was written and also the movie was produced by Alex Haley. He also, I think he was the author of Malcolm X's autobiography as well. But anyway, that particular movie set the standard for what people thought slavery was, right? And how it actually occurred. So the character Kunta Kinte was one of the major focal points in that particular movie. And only later to find out that Kunta Kinte was a fictitious character. Uh, Alex Haley was sued for plagiarization of the movie Roots, he took the character and a good percentage of the story from a book called The African. So he was sued to the tune at the time of some, say, a half a million dollars, which was a lot of money back during the time it actually occurred. But still, the psychological damage that was done to the masses of people uh, searching for their roots in Africa when in actuality could be elsewhere. And I'm saying that uh, just if you stick to the end of the video, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, there is somewhat of a cold war or a civil war amongst black people these days in trying to find out, are we really from Africa or are we indigenous to America or did we come from somewhere else? I'm gonna give you the pros and cons for both of those arguments by showing you my story and letting you pretty much come up with that summation yourself, right? So once again, my name is Russell Bruce. I was born and raised in a little town called Newcastle, Pennsylvania. To these particular parents here, my loving mother, Penny Mae Bruce and Russell Bruce Sr. And here I am out here born in 1964. And 
Tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to look at my paternal lineage to see where this Bruce name came from. So that is what the goal of today's uh, podcast is actually all about. Here's my mother's mom and my mother's father. Those particular lines have interesting stories as well. The uh, Upshaws and Adams on my grandmother's side go back to Georgia and Alabama. And they were there for quite some time. So uh, it looks like if they weren't Creek Indians, they were living amongst them for hundreds of years down there in Georgia. So I could take that lineage back into the 1700s. Uh, my grandfather, Ned, his family from Alabama. Once again, these people go all the way back into the 1700s prior to a lot of people immigrating here uh, between 1880 and 1920 when a, a lot of the foreigners migrated into this country. These people were already here. And these are my ancestors. Uh, my father's mother, Laura Bruce, she is, her maiden name was Laura Drake, and those Drakes come from Tennessee. There's a long history of them in Tennessee and also uh, in Alabama and Mississippi. She always talked about her Choctaw Indian uh, heritage. All right, so, and here is my grandfather, George Bruce. And let's take a look at these lines. He uh, grew up in the Ohio area, but he was born in Pennsylvania. My, uh, yeah, I'll tell you here. So Franklin Lewis Bruce is his father. So this is my great grandfather. He was a Civil War veteran, uh, born in 1868. And he was actually born in Hardy, Virginia. And later on migrated into the uh, actually no that was not him he, he was born and raised in Pennsylvania so when we go further back excuse me so it was Andrew Jackson who was a Civil War veteran and I'll share some information with you guys on that and and this is pretty good information because a lot of times black people have been given a bad rap saying that we're not patriotic but when it, I do my genealogy on all of these different lines, I see a ton of war veterans. And if you go further back in the 1700s, you see some who were uh, fighting in the American Revolution. So, and, and to be honest with you, some of them were on opposing sides. All right, so Andrew Jackson Bruce was my uh, great-great-grandfather. His father was Solomon Bruce, who was a blacksmith back in the 1800s. And his father was Joseph Bruce, and this is his wife, Sarah Bruce. So these two right here, this is where the story gets super interesting. So Joe and Sarah Bruce were born in the 1760s. Joe's uh, birth date's probably really closer to 1760 to 1765. But they actually were in servitude or slavery for a short period of time. Uh, when they actually went into slavery, I'm not 100% sure, but this is where history can be a little tricky. So once again, going back to the Kunta Kinte story, it's easy just to assume that, hey, these people were kidnapped and brought from Africa 
and you know we're enslaved yada 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 but the more you dig into history and really understand history uh, one of the things I did and what I would suggest that most people do when you're doing your genealogy find out where these people were located right so Joe and Sarah resided in at the time it was Hampshire County Virginia and uh, after the Civil War when uh, West Virginia split right you know, they, they were opposing factions, different ideologies. One was pro-slavery, one wasn't. Um, so later, this area in which they lived became Hardy, West Virginia. And then they kind of migrated to some, some of the other little small towns around there, like Moorville. Also, uh, I see some of them showing up on Williamsport Records, etc. But when you go back and you start to look at what was going on in this area? Let's see. I have a document here. That's not it. I think it's this guy right here. So I mentioned Hampshire County, right? So this was the beginning of slavery in West Virginia in particular in the counties in which I'm mentioning, right, where my ancestors lived. So they were born around, say, 1760. So let's just read this here. The beginning of slavery, and this is for the West Virginia area once again. Early settlers of property tended to recreate the familiar structures of Eastern Virginia, building Georgian and federal homes on large estates. The counties on the Eastern Panhandle, especially Jefferson and Berkeley, were the most rem reminiscent of Eastern Virginia. Many prominent families, such as the Washingtons, keep that name in your head, the Washingtons. That's George Washington uh, and his bloodline. They spent a lot of time in this area and uh, the Von Meter family that it shows, this Dutch family that it shows that my Bruce family were indentured servants or slaves to, they actually engaged with George Washington. And there's many stories of that. The Fairfax is in the lease. But once again, here's something to keep in mind. This Washington name, 93% of the people that carry the name Washington in the United States of America are people of color. They're non-white. And when you study firsthand documentation of George Washington, it describes him as a dark man. Also, the Lees. He's tied to Robert E. Lee, married into his family, lived on his property. You read the firsthand accounts of Robert E. Lee, also, his military enlistment, you could do that on your own. So you can't say I made it up. It describes him as a dark-skinned man, not a white man. So the way history has been told to us, a lot of times you just see these cartoon pictures of people in stories. And a lot of times they're made up. And like not only was Roots plagiarized, there was a lot of history that was plagiarized. And that's just the facts. And, you know, it, it's not to really to put one group of people over another. This 
what I'm trying to bring to you is to destroy the myths and let's talk about things more dealing with reality instead of mythology, all right? Because there's a lot of lies that have been told. All right, in 1817, Colonel John Fairfax, Preston County, began the construction of his mansion, Fairfax Manor, with the aid of his sons and 30 enslaved people. The old log homes on the estate, the formal, formal residence of Colonel Fairfax and his family became the slave quarters in Davison, Gibson. So let me see what I'm trying to get to here. So basically what I was trying to get to was when I was reading this earlier, the first slaves that came into this, matter of fact, it's up here in the first paragraph. The earliest record of slaves in this particular area was about 1748. So once again, it's not like Europeans just came over here and just started building and taking over stuff. No, there were Indians who were here and who those Indians were is a whole nother story. But, you know, there were some treaties that were set up initially, and then for years, there were, there were wars. So it wasn't as easy as they just came over and set up. So in 1748, it looks like they were just bringing slaves in there. Now, it does not say that they came from Africa. Even like the 1619 stories, when they say that they brought 20 uh, Africans the document does not state that. The document states that they brought 20 some odd Negroes, <laughs> which does not mean that they're African. That meant they could have been Blacks uh, from Europe. They could have been Blacks from America. They could have been from anywhere, from the islands. But uh, some of it indicates that they came from South America, not even coming from Africa. So that's another story for another day. So this is just one of many podcast that I'm going to do on these topics because this is an elephant. You can't eat an elephant one bite. It's, it's going to take many, many uh, breakdowns of different sub stories to make this story really make sense. And I'm just going to give you enough information to really stir you up a little bit to make you want to go out and research more. So once again, 1748 is when the slaves first got there. So if I'm looking at my family tree, so Joe and Sarah's parents say, given that they were at least 20 years old when they had them, puts that back into the 1745 area. Once again, Joe was born probably closer to 1760. So say 1740, maybe 1730s. So... The question is, and this is what I'm researching now with some other relatives of mine, is did Joe and Sarah, like, were, like, say, for example, did Joe come from somewhere else and marry Sarah, who was a native? You know, was she indigenous? You know, they're listed as Black people on the census, but there's, there's more to that story, and we're going to get back to that as we go along. All right, so... One of the things about my story is Henry Louis Gates Jr., who does a lot of the um, he does a lot of genealogy, say for stars. So some of you are familiar with him. 
like right here that says African-American lives. He has different shows and has had different shows say over the last 10, 15 years, if not longer, where he does genealogy. And every now and then he talks about his own. One of the unique things that uh, makes him interesting to me is he and I both share the same four-time great-great-grandparents. So once again, my great-grandparents, four-time great-grandparents are Joe and Sarah Bruce, right? So if I click this, Joe and Sarah had many kids, right? They had 10 kids. And Henry Louis Gates Jr. is a descendant of their oldest son, Charles. I'm a descendant of their son, Solomon. And recently I've met some of my relatives that are descendants of Isaac. And, and I met them through doing research online and seeing some of the things that they posted and reaching out to them and finding out that there's some amazing people and they're on the same journey I am. So we've been spending a lot of time communicating. Also, uh, I have a 95-year-old relative that's sharp as any 20-year-old out there. And she actually got her master's from this, my same collegiate alma mater, Westminster. So we we have some things in common. She's well-traveled. Uh, she's a school teacher, authored books, et cetera. So she's been a wealth of information for me and, you know, putting some things together, sending me old pictures and documents. Uh, she was actually present uh, in 1929 at the family reunion. She was only said, she said she was like six months old, but her parents kept the minutes from the family reunion. So she's going to get that to me. So there's probably a wealth of information in there. And they may have more information on Joe and Sarah that's preserved. All right. So once again, Joe and Sarah had multiple children. I'm going to share something here that Henry Louis Gates Jr. shared on his program about my four-time great-great-grandparents. Slavery forces us to confront some of the worst nightmares in American history. But doing so is a necessary part of understanding who we are as a people and who we are as a nation. Jane Ailes told me that there was one more stop I had to make to fully understand my fourth great grandparents, Joe and Sarah Bruce. Hey, what a beautiful day. So nice to see you. Now, why have you dragged me here? We're here because this land was once owned by Abraham Van Meter, the oh, man wow. who freed your Bruce family. So this was his property? This was his land. So you mean the Bruce's lived here? Yes. Abraham inherited from his father in 1788. His father had two different parcels here that were adjoining. One was about 400 acres and the other was close to 200 acres. It's a uh, thousand acres that we can see. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. You know what's so, the irony to me is that it's so close to where I grew up and I didn't know it was here. So do we know where the Bruce's, their slaves might have lived? Well, probably somewhere here near the house. In so many ways, Joe and Sarah's story was quite exceptional. A free Negro couple who owned a large farm in the hills of Western Virginia but they began their lives as slaves, slaves who had the strength to survive. 
As free people, they had the courage to fight for their family and their land. They were African-Americans who helped to lay the foundation for all that our people have become today. I can't tell you what a great gift you've given to me. I've always wanted to be able to walk the land that my slave ancestors walked and worked. And I've been able to walk the land that my ex-slave ancestors actually owned. I never knew the specific states where they live. And all these names, it's my family that we're talking about. It's not some story in a book. All right. And see, he, like a lot of stars, like that was Cheadle. And he was talking to him about his family lineage. There's another one on here I want to share with you as well. That's not it. So from this same show, there were multiple parts, uh, but there were two parts in particular that I'm going to share with you. So this one here goes into, uh, he mentioned that Joe and Sarah and their children were free. So the Von Meters didn't have any children. Uh, Abraham von Meter and his wife Elizabeth. Uh, Abraham died in 1823, and what he did was, in his will, he set Joe and Sarah free along with half of the children, and then he left like four or five of the children with his wife Elizabeth until she died, and uh, he also gave them money and and land and so forth so they could buy their way you know, out of uh, bondage. And during this time, there was an issue in the state of Virginia because they did not like to have free Black people roaming around in proximity to slaves because they felt that they would be a safe haven for runaways, et cetera. And um, there was some other things I'm going to talk about after you watch this particular video. So this is talking about what happened even after Elizabeth died, they fought the Bruce family to leave the state of Virginia uh, after they were free. And this is what happened. 1941, petition of Charles Bruce and others asking to remain in the Commonwealth. December 14th, rejected. That's cold. Did you find any documents concerning what happened to the Mets? I can pick up the personal property tax lists which were taken annually. And um, oh, there it is 1841, 1842, 1843. They were paying taxes every year. They didn't leave. They stayed and um, and stayed for many years. But James, how could they somebody not notice this black family with 10 kids living illegally in the, in the state of Virginia? Everybody knew they were there. But you look, you look at the list of people that signed their petition and it's prominent people around Moorfield. Hmm. Um, These are all white landholders. Mm -hmm. huh. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So it was a conspiracy of silence. Yes. To protect them. Mm -hmm. hmm. I thought of this period as a period of black and white extremes or opposites. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, this case creates a whole lot of gray when white people are protecting the identity of black free Negroes who own property. Free Black people lived between two worlds. They had more rights than slaves, but they had less rights than their white fellow citizens. 
they were always vulnerable to racism. But sometimes white people helped them. For over All right, so that tells the story. And they were in and out of court a lot. And it didn't even stop there. But eventually, uh, some of them, if not all of them, left and ended up in Pennsylvania, in Waynesburg in particular, in Little Washington, Pennsylvania. So uh, when Elizabeth Von Meter died, she left them everything that she had left. Because when her husband died, he he gave her like a third of his his estate, gave a third to the free slaves, and he gave like a third to like his brothers and some relatives. And when Elizabeth died, she left everything that she had with the Bruce family. And the documentation in her will stated it was 1,600 acres of land, there was cattle, there were businesses. So the Bruces were left with a great start, but they were constantly in legal battles for their land, uh, not only with the state of Virginia, but also with community people and sometimes it was even relatives uh there was something i thought was very interesting some documentation i read on jr clifford who is actually a bruce relative he's married into the family he also helped fight to uh, keep them in the commonwealth when they decided to leave he was a hot shot attorney but he is also known for, let's see, let's pull JR up here. JR Clifford is known for being one of the founders of the Niagara movement. And here's a picture of him with W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, who also was, uh, I think he was one of the founders as well. But or well, he was in an NAACP, but uh, the Niagara movement eventually became the NAACP. J.R. Clifford, he, he had some uh, issues with the way the NAACP was going to be established. So he bailed out when it became the NAACP. But you could also uh, look at him. He's definitely one of the founders that led up to the NAACP. He was one of the four founders of the Niagara movement. And he was a relative that grew up in the Williamsport area along with the Bruces. So he and Samuel it showed that they at one point they had a little conflict and with him being an attorney, he tried to take his cousin to court. So there were a lot of Clippers, Redmonds, Letts. These were prominent black families along with the Bruces who were all free in between, say, 1823, 1830s, and 40s in Virginia during the time of slavery. So a lot of times when people hear about slavery, they just think that everybody was enslaved all the way up to 1865. That was not the truth. So there's something else I'm going to share with you guys here. Let's, let's look at this. Here, I'll just pull it back up. So the 1830 census, I'm not sure if I shared this on one of my other videos. So 1830 census 
there were um, Negro slave owners. Most people don't know about this. So here we go. Free Negro slave owners. So you could look this up. This is archived and it's in the public domain. So if you Google, you could type in PDF free Negro slave owners or 1830. So this particular book was written by none other than Carter G. Woodson, founder of Black History Week that later became Black History Month. And Carter's very interesting guy. Uh, became real famous for his book called The Miseducation of the Negro, uh, which <laughs> the information in there still holds true to this day. One of the things I always remember that he said, I think he was like a Harvard Yale grad. And as a black man, he says, in life, you get two educations. There's one that's given to you. And then there's one that you give to yourself and the latter being more important. So that's why it's so important for us to go out, not to allow someone else to tell you who you are, where you came from, who your people are, uh, what your tendencies are, all this different stuff like that. Because, you know, as we look back over history, we see that there were tons of lies that were told. Like, even, for example, when we look at the theory of evolution, you know, uh, Darwin's theory of evolution was really him trying to prove that the Aryan race was superior. Matter of fact, he wasn't even trying to prove it. It was straight up pop propaganda to convince other people to think that they were superior when indeed, uh, you know, if you study history, that wasn't even a case. Like the Moors ruled Europe from seven, well, they ruled Spain from 711 to 1492 and most of Europe into like the 1780s. So they did not write that type of documentation during that time period, came later. And even once in America, they used the same theories against other uh, so-called minority groups as they entered in the country. Uh, they wrote negative uh, propaganda information against the Italian people, against the Jewish people, et cetera. So, you know, it was just black people's turn or indigenous people. Hate to use the word black, and that's gonna be a whole nother podcast. So once again, this right here, 1830, it shows the slave owners. And this is an interesting read in the beginning before it gets there, because it talked about how a lot of this is really just landowners. And what they would do is you know, taxes and all that stuff was based upon, you know, not only just the land, but the land to slave ratio. So as far as taxes and so forth were concerned. So if you're looking at it from, say, like an employee and employer standpoint, you know, so if your family members were helping you on the farm, they were listed as slaves, you know, but, you know, you could have Joe blow up the street and, you know, some other people in the surrounding areas or immigrants that were coming in that had no place to stay, you gave them a place to stay and allowed them to work on your farm and even paid them, they were listed on here as, as a slave. So this right here starts off state by state. It shows, you know, 
who actually owns slaves. So when you're studying your genealogy and you run into roadblocks, sometimes uh, if you're back in this 1830 area and you're trying to find your ancestors, you could check to see if maybe, maybe they own slaves or they own land, they would show up on here. Uh, then you had other states where slavery didn't exist or it was fairly new, you know, they didn't have any. But on here, the top four states as far as slavery were Louisiana, North and South Carolina, and uh, well, in Virginia and Maryland. Those five states are where predominantly there were a ton in Louisiana in particular, because when a lot of the uh, French were, you know, being expelled during the, uh, the, the Catholic Protestant Wars, and the same thing happened in Virginia, it, it, it was all wars. It was the Catholics fighting against the Protestants, and they were actually ousting people. So coming back here, let, let's finish this, and I'm, I'm going to tell you another little story. I'm trying to keep this short, but there's just so much information. But you could just kind of look through here. You know, you, here, let's do this. Let me see. Let me go to the state. I shouldn't have did that. This thing does not come back too quick. There we go. So, like, for example, in Louisiana, you know, you have a lot of these French names, right? So even some of the French settlers that came from Acadia, like uh, my Queen Janie, like when we do her genealogy, we can go all the way back through uh, the migration of her people when they were expelled out of France and they were sent into Acadia and Nova Scotia and different parts of uh, Canada into Montreal. And then ultimately, migrated coming down to Mississippi down into Louisiana so we could track that history going all the way back to the 12 1300s in some cases on some of our lines we have their stories we have pictures so it's very well documented that you had a lot of these French and they weren't always white French people you had black French that came over some mulatto you know you had some Moors who like we're there from when uh, Louisiana was once a Spanish colony. Then one day you wake up in 1500s. Next thing you know, with the Louisiana, <clears throat> with the Louisiana so-called purchase, you end up in a situation where uh, they were once West Florida, and then they wake up the next day there, the state of Louisiana. So it's very interesting history, but a lot of those people who came and colonized and settled in this area, they never left. They're still there. Their descendants are still there. So you have a ton of French names of people who mixed in with the indigenous people who were there. You had a lot of Black Indian tribes here. And, you know, people don't want to talk about that. But this particular area, you go to Louisiana, it has a culture of its own. You know, and it's like, you know, the carnival, you know, if you look at the, the islands, you look at Barbados and you look at Jamaica and you look at um, Haiti, Haiti and Louisiana have a very strong connection. They were moving uh, slaves or indentured. They were moving them back and forth between Louisiana and and to uh, and to Haiti. So. 
you just look through this whenever you get some time, you, you'll find there's thousands upon thousands of slave owners that had thousands or had millions of slaves. And these were black people. So once again, this book is called 1830 Free Negroes. If you Google 1830 Free Negro Slave Owners. Pull this back up. Easiest way to find it is when you Google, you could type in PDF so you can pull up the archive P PDF. Free Negro Owners of Slaves and this particular book will pop up. A lot of people know nothing about this book. So how does this fit into the Kunta Kinte story? How does this fit into being brutalized? And I, I know that a lot of people, you know, black and white people, some of them is gonna rub them the wrong way. Like, you know, some of the white, white people, you know, they love being the dominant force. So it's like, they don't want this to be true as well documented. This is coming from the census. So take it up with the government. This is a real document. And some black people want to be victims. But the truth is black people were here in America prior to the migration of a lot of the foreigners. The majority of the Anglo people here in this country, they could tell you when their family migrated to America. The majority of them came post-Civil War. So they came after slavery had ended in 1865. The majority of them came afterwards. It's documented between 1880 and 1920, over 20 million Europeans, Anglo-Europeans, came through Ellis Island and came into the Americas. And so when it comes for things like reparations, Black people always want to talk about slavery, but when you start reading the history of slavery, a lot of Black people own land. You had Moors who were constantly coming back, back and forth to the Americas during their rule of Europe, who set up shop, you know, in Florida's and the Keys and different areas in South and Central America. And, um, you know, these people had land and they were bringing white slaves over as well. So there were a lot of white people who were working on these farms, either in Jamaica or Barbados, uh, Martinique, you know, you name it. Like when you start looking back at this history, it's not the way it's told in the school system. The school system starts history around 1765 excuse me, 1776, when America or United States Corporation was established. So prior to that, they don't want to talk about it. So when you talk about the founding fathers, it's all around 1776. But when you really look back at history, the 13 colonies were being established by King James, his son, King Charles I, his grandson, King Charles II, and then, you know, they had multiple states and ultimately King George, who was a German, because King James and his sons were Scottish. So, and King James was a steward. So if you look, 1609, he, he set up the uh, first states, which are like Massachusetts. I wanted to list that here, but you can go look at that at your leisure. He set up 
the first state in 1609, and then 1611, here comes King James Version of the Bible. So it has something to do with the establishment of America. We'll talk about that in a, in a separate uh, podcast. But uh, the 13th state in the colony was Georgia, which was King George, who was also a melanated man. Now, all these people are mentioning, they don't show you that in these pictures that they show you. You see something other than that. Like, for example, the majority of the people hear these crazy stories about King James. King James, you can go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or whatever right now. You'll see this picture on most of the books that he penned himself. These pictures come out of the London Library. So these are not figments of my imagination. This is actually a picture of his father. And there's some other pictures of his mother. It shows her as a melanated. Every black person got an uncle that looks like this. He might be lighter skinned. He got fine hair or whatever. But these are melanated people. But you see all these different pictures. All these pictures of King James. And you'll see some other ones that look totally different than these. They're not. <laughs> they're not authentic pictures. A lot of pictures were whitewashed of a lot of people. Uh, I did a video on um, Black Irish in America, and I kind of went in depth on some of these some of these topics. So you might want to go back and see that video. I have it linked to this video at the end. So you can take a look at that at your leisure. But this was King James. His uh, nephew was referred to as the Black Boy, and there were restaurants in Europe called Black Boy Inn, named after his, his grandson, all right? So Jamestown, Virginia was named after King James, Charleston, West Virginia, Charleston, South Carolina, all those were named after his sons, his grandson, uh, King George, the state of Georgia is named after King George. Uh, Charlotte, North Carolina is named after King George's wife, Charlotte. And that's the one you see that Anne Boland movie or the movie of Queen Charlotte shown her as a black woman. So those are real stories that have been whitewashed, hidden. A lot of people in secret orders, they know the truth, but they're not going to tell you the stuff you have to figure out on your own. So I, I don't belong to any group that's a keeper of secrets so I'm telling <laughs> and these people were melanated and they came and established the 13 colonies and um, history's not being told the way that it should be told and what happened was later on you know with a lot of internal wars you had black Europeans fighting black Indians and no different than some of these cities, you know, you have uh, the Crips and Bloods fighting, say, in South Central, and by the time they fight, and the, the prices of the homes in the area go down, and no one wants to move in there, houses get boarded up, then foreigners come in and do what? They come in, they buy up the land, they rebuild it, they make it pricey, and they build high rises and all kind of infrastructure to the point where people with no money can't live there. That's the exact same thing happened in the country. Did you hear what I said? So it was black on black violence. And if you go, you look at these wars, you look at the civil war, 
You look at the American Revolution, there were tons of Black people fighting on both sides. Like, for example, the American Revolution, French War, French and Indian War, tons of Black people were fighting in these wars. So this book right here, Virginia Colonial Soldiers, uh, whenever you see it advertised, they'll never really show you all the details inside of the book, but I actually purchased this one online. And uh, here, let's do this. Let me see if I could. Uh... Go down here and kind of show you what I'm talking about. You start looking at some of these wars and rosters and all right. So in here it actually lists some of these Virginia colonial soldiers, right? And it gives their description, hair, color, height, etc. So you'll see fair, these are complexions. You'll see fair, you'll see black, you'll see brown. And fair could mean they were light-skinned, like yellow-complected, or they could mean white. But if they were white, normally it says pale. And you will see some of these on here, but the majority of these people were either black or brown. And you could take a look here, you have a sword, sword master, it tells what their occupation is. This guy's from England. This guy was from Ireland, Jersey, Dutch. They're all fighting side by side. And obviously they looked alike. So they had to give descriptions as to where these people were from and what they look like. So you see there were a lot of people from Ireland. You see people from Virginia and Maryland you know, from these particular colonies, which were heavily melanated. And even to this day, you know, that's, they call DC what? Chocolate City. Yeah, as those were black cities. And um, Ireland and Scotland, especially Scotland, you know, back in the day, it was predominantly black. They don't want to tell you that it's not black now because after all the religious wars and then Cromwell, within like a 10 year period, it had probably kicked out at least like 50%, if not 60% of the population was either murdered or kicked out during wars. And what, where did they send them? They sent them to America. They don't talk about that, right? Also was not talked about, once again, like I said, there were tons of wars that were going on here with Indians. So if they were just fighting a nomadic people who really wasn't building like towns with, with buildings, like cities like Chicago, which was founded by a black man, you know, or, you know, looking at California, like San Francisco, those cities, when you study their history it's very unique. And, um, you know, you hear these mudflood stories and, you see the stories of the world fairs in these so-called deserted towns with all these buildings. And, you know, in some cases, they just say, oh, they were built by slaves. Like, or could they have been built by the Black Indigenous people 
who were already here before the foreigners came. But as you can see, there were tons of wars that were going on here on this American soil. And this Yamasee war, these Yamasees for a fact were black people. Uh, the University of Penn had dug up hundreds, if not thousands of these bodies of these particular uh, Indians to find out basically who they were. So there was an apology that uh, took taking place recently where they were apologizing about digging up the bodies and, and either they returned them or planned on returning them. But they were worn with these indigenous people and they pretty much subdued them. And by the time you get to the uh, mid to late 1880s, that's when the Anglo-Europeans pretty much took over this country. You know, and if you don't believe that's not true, the, the clan wasn't started until post, uh, say, 1865, uh, slavery ended, ended the Civil War. 1866, the clans created. Africa even wasn't colonized until after that, until the 1880s, I think it was. And, um, you know, most of the conquest took place there. And I'm going to do another special on the Black Holocaust or the African-American Holocaust, uh, which is a class that is has been established by Yale University uh, dealing with what actually happened. Because most of the lynching, the rioting, uh, the backlash, you know, from the retaliation, you know, and, and I'm going to throw some other twist into that as well. Most of that occurred when all the foreigners start coming in in 1880 to 1920. If you look, most of the riots and most of the black massacres, like the destruction of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, Rosewood, there were thousands of them. Even here in Atlanta, uh, or north of Atlanta, up here at Oscarville, that, that town was flooded out. So you'll see where and it, it, it could be included on here because what happened was they either burned or flooded these towns out, murdered most of the people, chased them off the land. Once again, my people were in Virginia with a lot of land and they ended up in Pennsylvania and we're still trying to figure out who got the land. All right. So let's come back to this. I kind of went off. As you can see, I'm a little passionate about this. And once again, this isn't really about trying to tear anybody down. It's about trying to get the truth out there so we could have real conversations. We could have conversations where we regurgitate lies and, you know, stroke our ego about nothing. Or we could talk about the truth about what really happened. Because here we are again, and in most people, it's election time. And, you know, a lot of these issues are coming up again, but this time people have no clue what's happening. You have millions of foreigners coming in and people who have been here forever, like, you know, where's the reparations? We don't get reparations. You know, you have uh, homeless people, you have starving, starving black and white people here, but you're giving millions of dollars out to foreigners coming in. This is exactly what happened when the indigenous population was was overthrown back in the 17 to 1800s here on this soil. 
they're bringing millions of people in who are, are struggling in their foreign countries. If you give them guns and money and tell them to subdue these people, that's their job now. You know, just like most of the people who, who came, you know, from Ireland and, and came from Poland, all these other places, they had them join the military and then they gave them land at, if they survived the war. And it's going to happen again. So it's like, this is the time when, and this is the reason why people need to know the truth. The truth of everything is being exposed so people can line up. Are you going to be on the side of truth and justice and love? Or are you going to be on the side of, of the lie or, or you know, the, the demonic forces, you know? It's like, and we're pretty much there. This, this is the Armageddon. This is the world war. You know, people are waiting for two major countries or all these countries to kick it off. It's happening. It's happening. And where are you going to stand in history? All right. So I digress. Let me get back off of that and get back into the program. I got a couple other things I want to share with you guys. So I shared this on another one of the podcasts, I think maybe on a Black Irish one. So this is Ben Franklin in 1751, right? So going back to that same time frame, right? America was established in 1776. And this guy was concerned with that there weren't that many white people in the world, that the majority of the people in the world were black and brown. So once again, you had the early settlers, you had, you know, when they talk about pilgrims, they never mentioned all the black people that were on those ships, right? And even when, uh, you know, Georgia was established, like I was working with one of my friends today, who's a black man, quote unquote, and uh, his ancestry comes from from Georgia, and his name is a German name, right? And so I'm helping him dig his history up, and I'm already back into the 1700s. And after I find the next relative to put us in the 1600s, they were always free. They were, were farmers, their own land. And most of them, and this is another thing, one of them is listed on the 17 or no, the 1870 census as 110 years old, and he's still working on a farm at 110. So he was still alive on the 1870 census. He was born in 1760. And what I'm finding, he had several other people on that same line that lived over 100 years old. So they were living very long lives. So that's another story that they tell you about slavery, how they had these short lives and you know, they, they were only living to be 25, so the women really didn't have kids. And once again, I could show you my family and everybody's family that I did their genealogy. I see this. They were having very large families, and they were living pretty lengthy lives. So that part dodged the hijack because it is not, I'm not seeing that now. Was it the case in some scenarios? Probably, yeah. You know, and and once again, it, it's the part that they're not talking about how a lot of these uh, Anglo-Europeans, like when they were sent into, say, like Jamaica or Barbados or 
you know, some of these hot climate islands to work long hours on these plantations, you know, because they had to work off their indenture. Like if they were fleeing their country, like some of these people were fleeing now and up in Chicago when it's like negative, like 10 degrees and they're not used to that kind of climate. But hey, you either go back and, and live in the persecution in your country or you got to deal with the climate. You had a lot of people who were forced to work in these hot climates, and if they weren't melanated, they struggled. You know, so those stories did apply to some people, but it wasn't everybody. And the stories are not being told the way it really happened. In some cases, they're being told in reverse. So if you hear that, this is one of the last things, and I'm going to cut it short after this because I could go on for four or five hours on this topic. But a lot of times, you know, you have people not only, you know, a lot of people now doing their genealogy, a lot of people are doing the DNA testing. This is where the DNA testing to me gets extremely tricky. Some of them, if you read it, is say that it's for entertainment purposes only. And the reason is, and one of the owners of one of them even mentioned that um here let me do this real quick. He mentioned that it's like under one percent accuracy as far as trying to say, hey, you're from this tribe in Africa. And they can't tell you what tribe you came from Africa. And in some cases, they're mentioning nations that didn't even exist, say in the 16, 1700s. And you're you're trying to match it up. You could only match that DNA up with living people. Like if you're trying to figure out who somebody's daddy or their mama was. Yeah, you could you could do the DNA and match it with living people, right? You could match it and find cousins. You could match it and and come up with some strong theories as to who's who. Like one of my cousins recently, uh, Gina, shout out to Gina. I think she finally convinced me why I need to do it. And it's not only just for me, it's to help other family members who are trying to find their family. Like some people may have been adopted. Some people have been lied to about who, who their father really was. I've heard and seen so many stories uh, where the DNA actually matched them up with their real family, you know, cause they have the same paternal markings. But uh, here's something in history that most people don't even talk about. And even most people, when they talk about black history, black history month, it never comes up, is Liberia and Sierra Leone, but we're going to talk about Liberia here to keep it short, but I'll do some breakdowns in the future of Liberia and Sierra Leone, because what had happened is, like, say, for example, like with my relatives in Virginia, slavery did not end to 1865, so if they were free, which there were thousands, you see there were uh, thousands of Blacks that owned land and had people working their land, right? So you have all these free people. The American Colonization Society was set up to try to get Black people to leave and go to Africa. So this was the dream of the Europeans that were coming here to the country, is to convince Black people that they were from Africa and that they were not indigenous to this land to get them to go back to Africa. And most of them knew they weren't from there, but some of them just to get away from the mistreatment, like some areas where it was probably harsh if they were isolated, 
you know, like even now, you you got a lot of black people now that, you know, go to Ghana and different places, they repatriate, you know, because they're just tired of the racism or or whatever. They just want to be around people that look like them, whatever the reason is, right? But back in the 1800s, the American Colonization Society, look it up, guys. The American Colonization Society was trying to give free tickets to Black people to repatriate and go and colonize Liberia. And they did. And in fact, the first nine presidents of Liberia were so-called Black Americans or African Americans. And I'm going to talk about that as well. Why did they change their names? When Columbus and them got here, they said they seen what? Indians. And it wasn't that he thought he was in India where that came from because India in 1492 wasn't even called India. It was called Hindustan. It didn't get called India until recently. But Indian was a name that was given to indigenous people. So, and that was around the world. So they called them Indians. Then they called them colored. Then they were mulatto if they were, say, uh, black European or white European mixed with uh, an indigenous uh, melanated person. They called them mulatto. Uh, then they were black. Then they were African-American and now black again. Why have they changed the status so many times? And there's a reason why. In being called black in law, meaning you're dead, meaning you have no rights that they really need to respect. And that goes back to the Dred Scott decision. But here, this is a little brief thing. I'm going to play a couple minutes here just so you could understand a little bit about Liberia and its connection to free black people or black slaves that went to Liberia to colonize Liberia. Liberia is the first and oldest modern republic in Africa. Liberia is also a multi-ethnic and multicultural nation with over 16 distinct ethnic groups and more than 20 spoken indigenous languages. One particularly interesting member of Liberia's diverse ethnicities are the Americo-Liberians. Americo-Liberians are a Liberian ethnic group that trace their ancestry to freeborn and formerly enslaved African-Americans or Afro-Caribbeans who immigrated to Liberia in the 19th century. They are currently estimated to number around 150,000 people. Americo-Liberians are sometimes referred to as Congo people because former slaves from the Congo Basin who were freed from slave ships after the prohibition of the transatlantic slave trade were integrated into Americo-Liberian society. Americo-Liberians share a similar ancestry and culture with the Creole people of neighboring Sierra Leone. Most Americo-Liberians originated from the southern United States, particularly from South Carolina during the Liberian exodus of 1878. On the other hand, Afro-Caribbean immigrants to Liberia were relatively few and mostly came from Barbados, Jamaica, and Trinidad. Americo-Liberians are usually noted for their preference for Western styles of dressing, Southern plantation-style homes, American food, and monogamous kinship practices. Check their flag. Traditional Americo-Liberian cuisine includes African-American soul foods such as cornbread, fried chicken, collard greens, but also incorporates local African traditional dishes such as palm butter soup and rice. 
The American Liberians introduced a form of African-American vernacular English that has greatly influenced the dialect of English spoken in Liberia. American Liberians today speak Liberian English, which is a variety of English that contains heavy influences from African-American vernacular English, Barbadian Creole, and Gullah. Here is a short sample of Liberian English being casually spoken. When I went to school, I started doing business. Yeah, the first business I started doing was I was selling soap, the cover crew. Yeah, when you call the pump, you burn it, then you back out it, you mess it up. America Liberians are predominantly Protestant Christians and mainly belong to Baptist and Methodist denominations. They are often credited for having introduced Protestant Christianity to modern Liberia and for serving as missionaries to other Liberian ethnic groups. All right. So once again, this topic is the importance of genealogy. I could go on, but I think I'm going to cut it short here. One last thing. Um, you know, they talked a lot of Black people into leaving America and going to Liberia. And eventually there was a civil war. So you could actually go on YouTube and Google the history of Liberia. And, you know, once these uh, free Black people here in America reached the shores over there, they were not received as African, you know, because the people over in Africa know that they weren't indigenous to that land they weren't from there all right and that and once again that's a big debate that's going on i'm not trying to debate with anybody but i'm talking about i could look at my family tree and i don't see any slave schedules or any uh ship manifests where any of these people got off of a ship coming from africa like joe and sarah most likely in the state of virginia during that time like a lot of other people these particular bruce's one of them would have been a descendant of somebody that came from Scotland. And I have relatives who, you know, through the years, stories were passed down that, hey, we have relatives over in Ireland and Scotland. You could look at stuff like even um, Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali's bloodline takes him back over to Scotland. So he has a, um, I think it was a, a, a white uh, Scottish man had uh, married a black woman, or at least they had a child that he's a descendant of. So he went back to uh, Scotland. Let's look at that real quick. And we're going to end this here shortly. Oops, I spelled that wrong. So here's Muhammad Ali. Discovering his roots going back. The situation, in, I, I've never experienced anything like it before. The situation in Ennis was that everybody turned out. Everybody and their moms and their sons and their daughters and their relatives turned out. And they were all there to see the channel. But then we got in the, in the car, then the while, and I touched a big, great grandson um, coming to Ennis. With pure life. And I'm very unlucky to get this unreal. And we're surrounded by cameras.
Yeah, but anyway, Muhammad Ali goes back. You could look at people like uh, Bob Marley. There's a, a good movie that's getting ready to come out early February about Bob Marley. And Bob Marley's uh, father, if I'm not mistaken, was a Scottish man or Irish. Let's see. So if you, you look this stuff up, so you have the Black Irish and Montserrat. If you look, the stories are all there, you know, like there's a book called From Whence We Came. Uh, whence we... Irish Jamaicans, I think it is. And if you notice that, you know, like even in Jamaica, they have like, like an Irish town and all that. They have very strong Irish roots. Uh, yeah, I'm talking about, here's the thing, you know, stories that we are being told in the school system are false. That's all I can tell you, that they're false. And the more you dig, you'll start to see that the stories aren't what, you know, they're, they're really not cracked up what they're supposed to be. But if you're going to study your roots, you know, you run into a roadblock. If you're from Virginia, there are 13 colonies. Start to study the history of that particular county, that state, and find out where the people were coming from. Um, black people, when you do your genealogy and it says you have X amount of European blood, that does not mean that it's white European. It's black European. And the thing is, if most white people are honest, when they study their roots, they're going to find that they have a lot of black people in their family tree. You know, unless they're from northern parts of Europe where, you know, like maybe Sweden and you know, like Norway or something like that. But if you're from places like Spain, France, Italy, or whatever, you got dark hair, dark eyes. Whether it happened on the other side of the pond prior to your immigrating here to America, or, or once you've been here, especially if you came into the 13 colonies in the 1700s or the 1600s, those areas were predominantly with melanated people, whether they were mulatto race, um, not mulatto race or, or, or mixed race, let's say that, um, you know, or, or, or black, there weren't as many white people as people lead on to be. Like even during the, the Civil War and the American Revolution, you know, they talk about Crispus Attucks being the first one killed, yep, because he was an Indian, you know? But anyway, I'm gonna cut this short because I, I could go on forever. Um, and um, I'm going to probably have to do a part two and a part three to this to really get to the gist of it. But uh, I just wanted to use my story to kind of show that, you know, not only, you know, can you find your story, but when you run into a roadblock, it doesn't have to go into this black hole and say, hey, I'm from Africa and you just make up a tribe or an area from Africa that you're from when indeed you could trace it to an actual person 
across the pond, you know, because a lot of people have done so. And here's here's one other thing, and I talked about this book in another podcast. Let me see if I still have it up. If I do, we'll talk about it. If not, we're going to end it. I don't think I have it up. But what it is, is the, um, the Jacobite gleaning book. And basically what it's talking about is is listing the people that were on bingo, this is it. So during the Jacobite War, so if you Google the Jacobite Wars, right? Jacobite Revolution, Jacobite Wars. Okay, so the Jacobite Rising, this is what you see. And this is very typical. This is what you get when you see the pictures of King James, the pictures of everything. You get this Anglo-European, you get these pictures like Black folks didn't even exist. So you get this, right? But when you go to the archives and you go to the books, the firsthand accounts, that were written about who these Jacobites were when they got off these ships. And so the Jacobites, just to make it short, the Jacobites were those who were in support of King James' bloodline, trying to put them back on the throne once they were off. Like King James was a, a Protestant, but if you dig deeper, he referred to himself as, as a Hebrew. And he took pride in it. And uh, like, if even if you look in the Bible, you, know, you have to do some research now because the introduction in the King James of the Bible was removed. And in the introduction, King James was really, he was beefing with the Pope. He referred to the Pope as the Antichrist. And his reason for having that version of the Bible translated, he believed that the Pope had mistranslated some things in, in scripture also remove some of the books so you know king james was trying to write a wrong now there were a lot of people say it was the first uh bible translated in english there were other bibles that were translated in english so you'll see that argument as well but his was that he believed that the pope had an agenda and mistranslated some of the hebrew in into english and he was trying to correct that he also, during that time, wrote a book on demonology because he, he felt that people were casting spells and that people needed to know what was going on. You could actually go to Amazon. There's a book uh, written by King James called Demonology. And once again, it has that same picture that I pulled up of him earlier, showing him as a black man. Um, but here are some of the, the prisoners from those wars. These were people who were in support of the king. So King James' last name was Stuart. A lot of people didn't know that. He was King James Stuart. He was King James VI of Scotland and King James I of England. He was ruling both places at the same time. So he was the first King James in England. So he was King James I there, and he was King James VI of Scotland. But he was from Scotland. He was a Scot. And so were his descendants, his son, King Charles, and King Charles II, his grandson, they were Scots. 
And these are the people who came to set up the 13 colonies, right? And they brought some of their people with them, set them up as governors, et cetera. And a lot of them came. And eventually when they were overthrown and kicked out, then, you know, Cromwell and others sent them to the Americas, Jamaica, and everything as servants. So you'll see a lot of Stuarts who were um, were on these ships. Uh, the one on 715, there were several Bruces on there. So those are people that now I'm trying to see what uh, cities and states that they came in to Virginia. A couple of them I do see they came into Virginia and try to connect the dots to see if they tie into my bloodline. But um, you could see here, it describes what these people look like, right? Black, this person red, or ruddy. Sometimes they just say ruddy. That one's referring to the hair, excuse me. So red hair, strong. This one says black. When it says D-O, that's ditto. So I guess there, maybe they're talking about black hair. Let's see. Black well made. Light hair, fair. So this one's saying a hair color first and then skin complexion's fair. Good face, fair. <clears throat> brown, thick. So this person's brown, strong, well made. This person's black, swarthy, slender. Swarthy means dark. So this person's a very dark person. And uh, you could look at these names here, right? Anytime you see a MC, a Mac, or whatever, these are Scottish names. And they're from the, like the Western Islands of Scotland. These Macs, you know, if I'm not mistaken, Mac is like the son of. So Mac Gillis would be like the son of Gillis, MacDonald, the son of Donald, and so forth, right? But as you can see, you'll see a lot of black and brown people. The majority of these people were black and brown people. Now, you're going to get the people who say, no, they were just white. That just meant they had a tan and all that. Okay. All right. We'll roll with that. But we'll go back to uh, your boy real quick because I don't think I covered that. Let's see, I, I didn't go over this. So once again, let's go back to see what your boy Benjamin Franklin was talking about here. So this is, once again, uh, observations concerning the increase of mankind. So he was concerned about there being so few white people in the world because they really represent a very small portion of the world's population. And, you know, their numbers are rapidly declining here in America as well. That's why immigration becomes very important. So, you know, we'll talk about that for, on another day. But anyway, so this is what he's saying in here. In, in uh, number 24 of this particular document, Benjamin Franklin says, which leads me to add one remark that the number of purely white people in the world is proportionately very small. All of Africa is black or tawny. Tawny means brown. Asia, chiefly tawny. America, exclusive, exclusively of newcomers, wholly so. Meaning outside of the 
white Europeans that they're bringing in at this time, 1751, that it is black and tiny, meaning it is black and brown. And most of the pictures and everything you see when you go to Europe, they talk about who they came and they were doing tobacco and cotton deals with prior to slavery in 13 colonies, they depict black people. Okay. And in Europe, the Spaniards and Italians and French, Russian, Swedes are generally what we call swarthy. So they're saying that the Italians, French, Spaniards, Russians, Swedes are generally called swarthy, meaning dark complected people, you know, as the Germans are also. The, Sac the Saxons only accepted, excuse me, the Saxons only accepted who with the English make up the principal body of white people on the face of the earth. In Saxon, you could play on words with this, Saxon is like the son of Isaac. That's what Saxon means. Anglo-Saxon are like the angelic, the angelic uh, Saxons or the angelic sons of Saxon, which at one time was attributed to the fallen angels. But that's the story for another day. Can't prove that, so... Just want to throw it out there. I ran across that before. But anyway, let's go on here. So who would the English make up the principal body of white people on the face of the earth? I could wish their numbers were increased. And while we are, as I may call it, scouring the planet by clearing America of the woods. So this is when they were just going out. Now they have power. They're going out looking, conquering other nations and areas and territories. And they're talking about scouring the planet by a clearing America of woods. What color are woods? Brown. So it's like clear the brown people out. And so making this side of our globe reflect a brighter light to the eyes of the inhabitants on Mars or Venus. So he's saying clear it out to the point where it's shining in Venus with non-melanated people. <laughs> Why should we, in the sight of superior beings, darken its people? This is racist, man. This is a real racist. He says, why increase the sons of Africa by planting them in America? So they were, he was against going to Africa, bringing Africans in, because see, the Indians were warned, the black Indians, even if you want to say that the, the red Indians or whatever, they were warned against them. Um, you know, where are the wars in Africa, by the way? Where are all the documented wars? We have the wars in Europe. We have the wars in America showing, you know, that these people were fighting after these wars. People were being sent into servitude, slavery. Where are these wars in Africa? I don't see them documented that tie into this story. And, you know, just the thought of you know, somebody taking a boat ride, chained up, damn near naked, laying in the ship on hardwood, no bathroom breaks, women having their menses, um, you know, after one day of laying on a, a carpet or in a bed, like some of you are nurses, you have uh, patients who lay in bed, they get cold sores after days, let alone months on hardwood, 
it's impossible to have been chained down and survive that trip for three months and come pick some damn cotton. That did not happen that way. Now, could it happen like the same way a lot of these Europeans came into this country where people were coming seeking a better way of life, you know, and they were willing to risk it all by riding on the boat, standing upright, bringing some food and some fresh drinking water and all that. Could they have come that way? Yes. But could they have come against their will chained up like that? It is kind of hard to believe that it happened that way unless unless they took a shorter trip into Europe and then from Europe they bounced into Canada somewhere or something like that. But, you know, the story, the way they tell it on um, slavevoyages.org, some of that stuff makes no sense. Like even the path that they say they took with the guyers, you get eaten up, your ship would get swallowed up, especially back then, like when they say slavery kicked off and you know, like the 16, 1700s, you know, they had sailboats. They didn't have big steamships back then. Those steamships came in in the 1800s. And that's when you see the, the influx of Anglo-Europeans coming in through Ellis Island on steamships. You could find those pictures. And uh, here, let's finish this sentence down here. It says, why increase the sons of Africa by planting them in America? where we have so fair an opportunity by excluding all blacks and tawnies of the increase in the lovely white and red. So it sounds like immigration, don't allow the black and brown people to come in, increase the white in the red, but perhaps I'm partial to the complexion of my country for such kind partiality is natural to mankind. That's interesting, right? So let's look at, Ships. All right, so now these steamships here can carry a lot of people. So you see, this is when a lot of the foreigners started coming in on steamships, so they could bring them in large numbers. You could bring thousands of people you could bring 20 million people in from 1880 to 1914 i think one of these documents said you could bring them when they're coming willing and they got bread and water and you know still not sure what they did for bathroom breaks on here but i'm sure they weren't laying on top of each other just laying in feces and you know, menstrual cycle wetness, and that's kind of gross to even think about. But anyway, all right, I'm, I'm going to cut it off here before I go too far to the left, but you guys are getting the picture. But once again, this information is not created trying to piss anybody off or do anything like that. It's just trying to get to the truth. And I'm just trying to use my story and what I'm researching to, to try to figure out how I fit into the story and how my people fit into the story. And, you know, and why stories are told the way that they're told, you know? It's like, I find a sense of pride in, in knowing that relatives who fought in the wars to help to defend the country, you know? It's like, 
their occupation, some of the things that they worked on, they built, and you know. Anyway, we're going to continue this dialogue, and um, I, I really would like for other people to get involved. I would like to do some live zooms to to get feedback and interaction to hear some other people's take on some of these different stories and topics. And if anybody's interested in joining me and in, in doing a podcast talking about these topics, uh, just reach out to me. I'm talking about I'd be glad to do it. I'd love to have some other uh, thoughts on these topics. But once again, this is, uh, you know, the importance of genealogy. So I think it's time for people to really get to know who they are. Don't allow anybody to tell your story for you. Tell your own story. I'm talking about, and it's going to tell you something different than what's been told. I promise you that. Once again, this is Russell Bruce, Matters of the Heart and Soul podcast. I'm out. <laughs>